Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. Vegetius Gaming Initiative Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. And we've got a really big show for you tonight. No? Ed Sullivan? Anyone? You sounded like Dr. Okay. Evil, and I just can't get over that. <laughs> I know it's not what right. you're trying for, but... <laughs> um, before we dive into that, little bits of business going on. First off, a correction from... Oh, I don't know how many episodes ago now it is. I have lost all ability to keep track of time. But um, we accidentally said that Buzz Aldrin was the first person to step on the moon. And it felt wrong when we said it. <laughs> but we were tired and we just kept going. And the moment that lovely Ameldeer corrected us, I went, oh my god. Oh, eight-year-old me is is so mad at me right now. Like We got like two other corrections out of it too. There was a couple other people that messaged us being like, you do realize. And I was like, yep, no, we know we'll talk about it. We got it. 100%. You guys are right to correct us on that. That is our band. No, we appreciate it. We, <laughs> we like to maintain a certain uh, degree of academic uh, accountability on this show. So if you catch us saying something that does not match the historical record, uh, please let us know, because our job is to not spread misinformation. That's the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. Oh, and it's the worst when I'm listening like to the episode when it comes out, and I say something, and I'm like, wait, that wasn't correct. Oh. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> um, on the uh, measure of podcasting, I believe right around when this episode comes out, it's either when this episode comes out or right around the same time as the next episode comes out, we will be launching a new podcast on the Earverm Network, so I wanted to stop and let you guys know about it real quick. Uh, this will be... I've mentioned We've mentioned it in the end thing. I do a, another podcast on the Earverm Network called General Nerdery that has been a weekly podcast just talking about liking things and nerd things and what it means to like stuff. We are switching that to bi-weekly because we had an idea for another podcast but I didn't want to put in, like, a third day of the week doing podcasting stuff. Fourth? Sure. Sometimes fifth. Yeah, I do a lot of podcasting these days. So we switched to bi-weekly, so it's, you know, same amount of me and Tyler talking about nerdy stuff, just with slightly different focuses. And we will be entering a show called New Byland, uh, which stems from people asking me to explain a nerdy thing to them, being like, I want to know all about Spider-Man. Well, let me tell you. And I'm like, man, you are asking for more than you realize when you ask me that question. Uh, so we decided to try and kind of make a podcast of it. So me and Tyler, who are both pretty nerdy, and our friend Mac, who will be joining us on the podcast, who knows? I mean, he's nerdy, but he doesn't know anything about, like, comics. 
and we will be teaching him and guiding him through a reading process. The first season is all about magic in the Marvel Universe. He wanted to know all about it. Yeah. Uh, and the original idea was it was going to be a, like, once a month thing. And they're like, you'll have 12 episodes. And I messaged them, like, a couple hours later going, okay, guys, bad news. You asked me for a full story, and I can't do this in 12 episodes. And they're like, all right, just however many you need, let me know. And I messaged them, like, a week or so later. I'm like, okay, good news. I got it down to 30 episodes. Uh, and, I mean, we will be covering... They wanted comprehensive. We will be covering comprehensive. It'll be, you know, everything ranging from Doctor Strange to Damien Hellstrom, the son of Satan. We'll watch the movies that come out based off these characters and talk about how they're different. Um, it is... In some ways, everything we can do to do a historical podcast, but about a fictional universe. That sounds that's like pretty cool. I, I'm sure we have uh, quite a few fans of i don't know nerdy things that might enjoy something like i mean that. if you're wargaming there's a good chance at least part of this will grab your attention so drop that name one more time what was that called it will be called noob island and it will be spelled n-e-w-b because we thought noob like oh you noob n-o-o-b sounded rude uh, <laughs> the other one's a bit more of a term of endearment i think yeah like oh i'm a noob at this overthinking phrases with thumbs here uh, <laughs> okay, so New Island, that that's the one to look out for. And, and how uh, how soon can we expect something like that? Uh, I am recording the first episode next week. This is January 1st. It should be out by February. Nice. Okay. So, I mean, within the next... Uh, if it's not out by the time this podcast comes out, within the next few weeks after that. Well, heck yeah, bud. Uh, well, we wish you well on that. I don't know who we is. It's normally you and I. Royal we. Oh, yes. I wish myself well on that. Yes, that sounds excellent. Thank you, me and Malark. Good luck from me and you to you. Uh. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to believe in yourself. Uh, or both of me in this case. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so that's exciting. And uh, we hope that you will check that out. Um and again, speaking of shows and where we go from here, our next book is going to be The Management of Savagery by uh, Abu Bakr Naji. In case anybody's wanting to follow along at home, uh, the place we both got it from is the uh, Pentagon, actually. The, the Department of Defense puts out uh, a series of books on, on various topics, and this is one on jihadist literature. So if you want to check it out. If I was not on some kind of watch list before ordering that book, I 100% am now. I talk to my FBI agent all the time. You know, it's it's kind of like praying. I just like, occasionally will be like, what do you think, FBI agent? Should I? Should it I not? It just keeps you from being alone. Um, That's right. But even before that, real quick, what uh, what is our fiction focus for next? For oh, yeah. These books? Uh, so our fiction focus between uh, Vegetius and the uh, Abu Bakr Naji is going to be the Imperial Infantryman's Handbook. And we are not going to be able to do it in one episode. So we're going to do that in either two or three episodes. Uh, again, not reading everything out of the book to you, just probably the stuff that is relevant and and some cool Imperium stuff that catches my eye, but it'll just kind of be for fun. So again, we'll try to do as... I, w I was looking at this book. It's like three or four times bigger than the Jedi book, and that Jedi book took us a three-hour episode. <laughs> oh, yeah, and the, and the, the text is far smaller um, there's not nearly as many like diagrams and pictures of things. It's mostly, I mean, it reads, it reads like a military field manual. And so like, I, I enjoyed reading it the first time because it, it was kind of familiar to me. It felt like home. We have had fans asking for this one. So 
Yeah, no, and 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 we're gonna we're gonna be enjoying it as well. Uh, these fiction focuses are always a good time. Uh, but yeah, so where do we go from here? We've got uh, we've got four books that we're of course going to be choosing from, and by the time this episode comes out, uh, hopefully that that voting thing will be up on the Facebook page. And so anybody who wants to help in the selection of our book after the management of savagery can please go to our Facebook page and do so. Um, so the, the three books that we're considering this time are the Icelandic Eddas, uh, which are a collection of myth and legend and story from the Vikings, particularly the ones who settled in Iceland. The next one is the March of the 10,000, which is, uh, you know, Thumbs actually suggested this one. I'll let him explain it a little bit. It is by Xenophon. It is by a major Greek guy about a hundred years before Philip of uh, Macedon, who we talked about last week, or last episode, um, who was a major Greek general in a mercenary group that went and was trying to help out in the Persian Civil War, and they were doing really well, except they, their head of state, the person they were fighting for, died, and they went, oh crap. We're 10,000 hoplites in the center of Persia. We should probably get out of here. So that's the, that's the, the book and kind of the, it's, a, it's the, the story of the campaign. Yeah, from one of the commanders of the army, like a first person account, we don't usually have stuff like this. Oh, especially of that time period. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, so it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. So that's a, another one of the choices. The third choice is Romance of the Three Kingdoms. I know a lot of our listeners are actually already familiar with this book. It is about the Warring States period in China. Uh, we, we've already covered a couple of the battles from this. Uh, one of my favorites, the Shugo Liang. I think we talked about that all the way back in season one. Yeah, I think that's the first episode I ever did. It's a, it's a very good story, and again, is as many parts legend as it is history, but it's, it's, it's very enjoyable. Um, and I, I really liked the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. And then the fourth one was suggested to us by a squire of thumbs, and the title is in Gaelic. So if this one is selected, by the way, Thumbs and I both promise to take crash course Gaelic lessons so that we don't butcher every single name in the book. But the name of the Just book is, of we're, we're going to butcher this now. We're both going to give our absolute best at the pronunciation of this Gaelic, and I guarantee you it's going to be wrong. Um, Preemptive apologies to all of you who speak Gaelic. Antain Bocolange would be my best guess. Uh, yeah, Antain, uh, it's got one of those apostrophe things over the <laughs> A in, like, Tain, so I keep feeling like that should, you know, have, like, emphasis. Antain Bo Kulunge? It's C U A I L N G E. Kulunge. Yeah, neither of us have studied this language. I'm, Again, so, it's... I'm so sorry, Anya. Oh my god, she she has like a degree in Irish studies, recommends this book to us, and we're like, yep, this is going to go great. One of our listeners in Tennessee is, I think she's fairly fluent in Gaelic as well, so I can, she's probably writhing at the moment and not in a good way. Um, so, yeah. Uh, well, we, again, if that one's selected, we will absolutely be taking a little bit of Gaelic lessons. I know that uh, hopefully Anya will be sitting down with both of us and beating her with her, her, her textbooks. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, again, uh, those choices were the Icelandic Eddas, March of the Ten Thousand, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, and the Irish one. <laughs> the Irish one, yep, that's perfect. It's kind of like the Calling Hamlet the Scottish play. Yes, 
Except that we don't fear that we're going to be cursed. It's just more a matter of... Not more than normal, at least. Um, yeah, yeah. You might notice that these books are very different than the kind of uh, books we've offered up before as things to read. You know, these are... Before has been The Art of War. The Art of War. Frederick the Great's Instructions to His Generals. The Poetic Eddas. Like, it's a, it's a very different way to go with it. And there's kind of a twofold purpose for this. One, a lot of these stories were intended as educational in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, uh, it's another way of examining ways of teaching military strategy in some respects. And two, we have now done, what is this? This was our fourth, like Vegetti's here is our fourth straight up war manual. Yes, I believe so. Yes. And we thought it would be fun for us and fun for you as listeners to hear a slightly different story because it was going to give us slightly different approaches to it. And then after this, we'll go we'll go back into the uh, the hard military science stuff. But there is there is uh, wisdom to be gleaned in these books. Like if you're, for mm -hmm. instance, when I was reading the Icelandic Eddas, of course you recognize that it's it's just as much myth as it is history. But there's there's quite a bit of good advice in there, there like realistic uh, battlefield strategies and tactics that would that would work in the real world and have worked in the real world whether or not this person in the story actually did it is irrelevant uh when it's actually a you know a, a wise thing to do and they probably didn't do the cool backflip before it you know like <laughs> yeah yeah so like the, the the dudes that like slay bearers with their bare hands i'm like okay there's probably a creative retelling there not that it's not possible i'm sure somebody has slayed a bear, a bear with their bare hands at some point <laughs> It ain't us. <laughs> uh, not me. Yeah, no, I, I yeah. no. Um, I run away from bears. Yeah. <laughs> They're big. And we have them here. I don't know if you all have them in parts of the world that you live, but we have them here in Montana. We get the grizzlies. They're, whew. They're big. Um, so yeah, those are the new ones. Please go on to our Facebook page and, and give us a vote. Uh, two more other things real quick, and then we're going to give you all what you have been waiting for, the meat and potatoes. Last time... Uh, Thumbs had mentioned this game, Phoenix Rising, and when he had been describing it, I was like, hmm, that sounds pretty interesting. And so I, I went in and looked at it, and when I was looking at it, I thought, oh, the combat in here is, is pretty interesting. It would keep me intrigued, no doubt, but there's also a lot of puzzles and a lot of uh, interesting little side things to do. My wife would probably love that quite a bit. Oh, it's it's Greek mythology. Oh, I you know, I'll probably argue with everything they say, but you know what? That's that that should be fun. Let's get it. So that's what you do even when the Greek mythology is like accurate and well done. Like just Greek mythology is about arguing with Greek mythology. Like I don't I don't want to um spoil anything for Thumbs yet cuz he hasn't got to play. My my wife and I have been devouring it voraciously, but Thumbs is a responsible adult with things to do. And well, so is my wife. I don't mean to imply my wife is not uh, me, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> anyways, the nice thing about this one is it's very um, accurate to the Greek mythology. Like, as I've been going through and listening to them tell the stories and having the, the interactions, I've been very impressed with how true to the to the lore they've stayed. Now, they're trying to keep it fairly family-friendly, so some of the some of the more squeamish things within the mythology for instance the exact nature of aphrodite's birth they kind of gloss over it make some jokes about it if you're in the know you know if you don't then almost anything to do with zeus if we're being too honest about it 
No, the depiction of Zeus is pretty accurate. Okay, he's uh... <laughs> Zeus is not a good person. Yeah, yeah. So you'll love it. You'll love it. Thumbs. I know we do. And and if you guys at home have been thinking about it, I know it's a little spendy, but it's it's definitely worth it. It was. It's been a very fun game, and not glitchy. Most of my other games drop me constantly. Like when I'm on Civilization, I get dropped constantly. When I'm on Fallout, I get dropped con- constantly. But I've not gotten dropped once off of this game. So that's pretty cool. That is nice. And then one last thing before I go is just kind of an appeal to anybody who might be in the know. I have traded out my orc army for a gene stealer cult army. And I am beginning to build one of those. I have never played gene stealer cult. I have never played tyranids. I have played against them. But um, I am fairly unfamiliar with their tactics and theories. So if there's any gene stealer cult players in the uh, listenership who would like to give me some advice for free, <laughs> I will absolutely take some. What? You said they're Tyranids? I don't actually know what the Gene Stealer cult is. So the Gene Stealer cult, they are they're an offshoot of the Tyranids. So like the Tyranids, you got this big hive fleet that's moving into the galaxy. But out of in front of that hive fleet, you have these Gene Stealers that go. And most creatures cannot exist away from the Tyranid hive fleet, gestalt consciousness, and still retain their intelligence. They become mindless animals, the majority of them, if they're separated from that psychic link. Gene stealers, this is not the case. They can function entirely autonomously with patience and intelligence. They can live for hundreds of years. And so a gene stealer will go and uh, infiltrate a world and they'll wait. They'll be patient until they can find a dark, deep place in order to start what they're going to do. And then they're going to start abducting people, not eating them, abducting them. And they uh, inject them with a parasite that makes them mentally bound to the gene stealer and makes them um, Randy, I think would be the word that you would want there. They, they, uh, they want to get it on. And so they go and they get it on with people who then, they then infect with the parasite. Their children are hideously mutated things that successively throughout the generations become more and more and more human looking until I believe it's like the fourth or fifth generation, they can pass for human, totally human. Like they can infiltrate human society entirely. And so they do. And then the idea is that they, they go everywhere. They go into the military, they go into the government, they go into the science, anywhere they can be. And then when the Tyranids arrive, they rise up from within, overthrow the government, shut down planetary shields, and let the Tyranids come and nom 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 on everything on the planet. Warhammer 40k is the most edgelord thing I have ever seen in my life, and I do not mean that as a negative. I love it so much. <laughs> so much and part of the reason i trade it out is like if i'm going to play a xenos like i need it to have be able to play, tell a good story the orcs are cool don't get me wrong like the the mindset of the orc especially how they play out in 40k is kind of cool but they're also very fantasy like they're the one thing within the entire universe that just feels more fantasy than sci-fi and the gene stealer cult you can tell some really cool stories with those guys like there's some good opportunities there um so anyway, I'm looking forward to it. And any advice anybody could offer on the actual gameplay would be well accepted. But I think we've yammered. Gosh, we've been going for 20 minutes and we've got quite a bit to get through today. Um, I think we're good to go. What about you, Thumbs? Yeah, let's do this. All right, let's start with our first section, Homework. Homework. 
So like many of the books that we've covered before, the final two chapters of this book, while not entirely doing it, are kind of rediscussing the things that have come up in previous chapters. A lot of it is like a lot of really basic information. You've probably heard some of it before, but it is stuff that is worth reiterating. And we're not going to dwell too overly much on some of the information we've already gone over. But again, the reason that Vegetius brings it up multiple times, the reason uh, that Frederick brought stuff up multiple times is because that it's important. Right? It's something that definitely needs to be considered. And on that note, there is... I, it's admittedly been about a week since I read this book, so I don't remember if this is a quote that you had, like that you that was in the book, or if you just summarized... No, this is a direct quote from the book right here. Perfect. Okay, you can see I've done my homework on our Section 1 homework. Uh, All arts and trades, whatever, are brought to perfection by continual practice. And this is something we've stressed before, that uh, uh, the Aristotelian notion that excellence is a practice, not a goal. And that's, and that's the idea here is that we want to constantly be in practice with the thing that you want to be good at. You know, uh, Thumbs is an artist and he's a leather worker. He practices those things constantly and continues to improve constantly. It's not because, you know, he's gifted by the gods. It's because he puts the work in. Any time that I don't draw for a couple of weeks and I start drawing, I just, I'm like, I know what it's supposed to be doing, but I can't get it to do it. Um. I haven't had this in a year, but I'm pretty sure if I didn't podcast for a month or two and then came back to it, there'd be a moment of like, oh God, how do I do this? It'd get a little rusty. I know I've, there's a lot of technical stuff. Like I got wires. If you guys could see, I, I look like a tech priest over here. I just got wires everywhere and I know where they go, but you know, give me two or three months off and I might not know where they go anymore. I love that you have like three wires and you're like, I'm a tech priest now. It's, there's more than three wires. You can only see three from your angle. You goob. But yeah, this, this idea of, of continual practice, again, you see it anywhere. You see it in music, you see it in dance, you see it in writing, you see it literally anything you can do is made better by continual practice. And so, I mean, that's, that's something that can not be overstated. Um, but when you're preparing for a general engagement, there's a few things to keep an eye on specifically. The first one would be that in battle, we run the risk between glory and disgrace. And now we're about to discuss something, one of the the little discussed, it's one of those things that's known, but not very much discussed in wargaming communities. And one of the things that I have noticed, just like with anywhere else, is that your social currency, your respect, if you will, within these communities is sometimes directly linked to how you perform on the field. I've absolutely seen the case where you have somebody who is, you know, they maybe not be that great of a person. They may not contribute to the sport at all, but they're a great fighter. And so people listen when they speak, they, uh, they inspect them and they invite them places, uh, not necessarily because they, they deserve it. I, I, I don't exactly know how to phrase that, but it's because the, the, the way we do social currency is on battlefield prowess. That's not to say that a non-com cannot earn a position of respect, cannot earn um, a position of, of uh, authority within the community, but they have to work 10 times harder to get there. Mm-hmm. And it's something that actually I have seen Belagarth work really hard on over the last couple of years of trying to like balance that out a little bit. Mm-hmm. But part of the thing that works against it is uh, even if we're not just fighting, fighting is where you can be the flashiest in a lot mm. of ways. Yep, yep. Because, you know, if 
you're doing a cool kickflip, and you know, I mean, don't do a kickflip, but like, <laughs> if, if, if you're doing a cool spin and killing three people, that is a very strong visual memory that when you see that person, you're going to be like, that dude spun and killed three people. While the person that made you your absolutely bomb meal, it's not fair, but it's easier to overlook them. Yeah, to, to have them be kind of part of the background. And they're just as, as crucial. You know, the people who dedicate their, their week to running Troll or the people who dedicate their week to being Heralds, again, it's not the flashiest. It's not the um, the most, I guess, within our social contract, distinguished of positions, but they're still absolutely doing work. I, I think they deserve, deserve respect. I like to say thank you to, to everybody who's helping out. You mentioned Troll right there. The people who will spend all week in Troll blow me away. Those people deserve all of the medals. Like, that is that is a thankless task sometimes. And this might sound like we're throwing shade at, uh, at our community, but honestly, this is something that occurs in all human endeavors. When I was in music, uh, every time I've been in music, you, you'll have somebody there who is just a savant. They're just, they're amazing at what they do, and they hardly ever mess up, and they play beautifully, and they might be a terrible human being. But people will treat them differently because of their skill. Happens in sports, happens in churches, happens literally anywhere that humans are, and they set up a arbitrary network for determining social currency. Humans like shiny things, and sometimes shiny things are the people doing spin flips. Exactly. So within a fighting community, our shiny thing is obviously fighting. So this isn't necessarily, again, to discourage anybody from pursuing a non-com career. I just want you to be realistic about the work that you're going to have to put in in order to receive the same amount of respect as a fighter. It's not fair. We're not saying that it's a fair thing, but it's just, it is. Also, people are noticing, even if it doesn't seem like it, people are noticing who is making the food or who is volunteering a troll or whatever. It just takes a little longer. It does. It does. But to focus on what we were kind of talking about for this episode... When you are a fighter, and that's your primary um, uh, expression, that's what you do, that's what you go to events for, is to fight, then your entire reputation is going to be based on how you do on the field. I know from personal experience, you know, the first four or five years that I was fighting, I wasn't very good. You know, I was, I was kind of decent, but I wasn't, I wasn't, nobody would talk about it. It wasn't one of those things like Thumbs was saying, where, you know, somebody would see me and be like, oh, that dude did something cool. It just wasn't happening. So nobody knew my name. I couldn't, I didn't have much respect in the realm. I didn't have much respect in any of the units. My voice didn't matter for much. And then I, I got my head out of my butt and I started practicing more and I started learning techniques and forms and all that sort of thing. And I started getting better. And then what do you know? Suddenly people are inviting me places. I've got folks coming up to me that I don't know who want to talk to me. People are asking me to run things. Like it was crazy. It weirded me out so weird much when it first started happening. And Not it just flips. That happened with you, but what happened with me. Right. Um. And any any fighter who's gotten to any sort of, of, of skill within their community will have noticed this. And you may be silent about it because you're reaping the rewards of it and you don't want to, you know, out yourself. But, you know, Thumbs and I are here to tell you that it absolutely occurs. And again, we, we try what we can do to make sure that we're building up our non-com friends and, and making sure that they feel valued for the absolute good work that they do. But again, it's... This is the way it is. So it's not meaning to get psyche out, not meaning to get in your head, but on the battlefield, you run the risk between glory and disgrace. 
That's just the way it is. But you can prep for it. And one of the ways you can prep for it is eating well beforehand. And before the event, this means like before you get on the road, the couple of days before you go to the event, this is carbo-loading. If any of you have been in football, you know what I'm talking about. When I say carbo-loading, you want to make sure that your body has as much energy to work with long-term as you can. I like to eat spaghetti. Very meaty spaghetti before an event. Get a lot of protein, get a lot of carbs. Yeah, that's, that's like my pre-event food. Something hearty, you know? Basically the same thing. I tend to prefer like a white sauce Alfredo, but that's just entirely because I really like white sauce Alfredo. Oh, who doesn't? It's delicious. <laughs> oh my God, it's so good. Anyways, uh, and it is not just, just before the event, but things to consider the entire event. You know, you still want to carb load while you're at the event, but you don't necessarily want to do it, say, right before you go out on the field. You know, oh, hey field battles start in 20 minutes is not the time to eat the leftover spaghetti from the night before. Right. Uh, because that is going to sit in your stomach. It is the time to eat some nuts and berries, maybe have an orange. Granola. Uh, Granola's you know, great. Granola's a great one. Fruit. Something that's going to give you energy, but something that it's not going to sit too much and it's not going to take too much energy itself to devour. But then, once you are done fighting... You go find that leftover spaghetti that I mentioned before, because it will be the greatest thing in the world, and it will make your night and your next day better. If you have a refrigerator or a cooler, don't go raiding that spaghetti if it's been sitting hot in your fridge or in your tent. Okay, yes, basic food safety <laughs> rules apply throughout this whole thing. But I had a theme. I thought I'd go with it. No, and it was good. You did well. And, and I mean, I, I have obviously a different way that I eat depending on what I want to do. If I'm going to be out on the field that day and that's going to be my focus, like Thumb says, I'm going to stick to a pretty vegetarian diet. I'm going to do a lot of nuts, seeds, berries, that sort of thing. Going to avoid meat because like he was saying, meat slows you down. Like it makes me tired. I don't know if anybody else reacts to it that strongly, but it makes me really tired. Um, I'll still have some like jerky something or like some bacon, but I mean like a piece or two. Right. of bacon in the morning and I, I you know i am not i'm not going hot and heavy on a steak right now that being said if i'm not fighting that day or i know that i'm going to be fighting for like an hour or two and then that's it oh yeah i'm going to have all the bacon from all the camps that'll offer it absolutely um so again it just depends it depends uh, but you want to make sure that you have fuel for the fire you want to make sure you're not going out there now I want to I want to actually kind of backtrack. We had a listener write in not too long ago after the last section we did on food. And he had some uh opinions that disagreed with us on on nutrition and on how to eat beforehand. And, and for instance the meat, he said that like when when he and the people that do what he does go to an event or something like that, they like eating meat is completely off the table because from his perspective it kind of carries on that sluggishness to the next day. And while I would agree, while I would say that, like, if you can burn completely clean fuel the whole time, you will feel slightly different. Part of the reason that we recommend hearty meals, meat if you eat it, or, or something that's, that's very hearty otherwise, for the evenings between, is because we have a much higher calorie need than a lot of other combat sports. Just because of the amount of time that we're out there and the amount of fighting that we do. Because it's it's constant, you know? You're fighting, 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 you're down, you're up. You're fighting, fighting, and, and that happens for hours and hours and hours. And so you need to like fuel back up at the end of the day. If we were doing something like fencing or if we were doing something that had shorter periods of combat, you know, I think we could get away with a much more 
ergonomic <laughs> eating system. But as it, as it stands, we like our hearty. We like the hearty eating. But whatever works for you, honestly, just be eating. That's the point. Yeah. Uh, the people that I know, they're like, man, I haven't eaten since yesterday. I'm like, that is not a good thing. That's not a good thing anyways, let alone with um, the amount that I've seen you running today. Like, sit down, have a candy bar, whatever, drink some water. Yeah, somebody's heading for a sugar crash. I am also the dad friend, so I can't help myself. They call me Papa Troll because I walk around shoving water down everybody who will drink it. I, I, uh, I do not deal with dehydration. I don't like it. So the next one is resting well after a long march. And so when, when I was reading this, what came to mind is after you've traveled. And because we have to travel so long, I think I have this perspective. Because like I, we have said before, if you're going from Montana, from Stygia to another realm you're traveling at least six hours to get there. And so we get there. Sorry, we my are... cat is meowing. Um, I'm sorry, I interrupted you there. Uh, just apologies if you guys hear a cat meowing in the background of this. It's not so, me for once. Uh, I, I, it's not me yelling at Cassius. Yay. <laughs> Go um, on, okay, I'm sorry, you were saying. It's cool, man. Again, for us, once we get someplace, we are stiff, we are tired, we are hungry. It is probably not the best idea for us to overexert ourselves on that first day, because typically the first day of an event is a half day. People are rolling in, they're setting up camp, whatever the case may be. And so I like to take that day to myself. Like maybe spar with some people I haven't sparred with. Like that's that's cool and dandy, but stay away from the field fighting just to give myself some rest. Yeah, you're going to work out some kinks, not like go in for a heavy duty. Right. And because I've noticed that the most injuries seem to occur the practice before an event and the first like half day of the event, because I think people are so excited and they just kind of let their emotions go and they get sloppy. And so you have a lot more headshots, you have a lot more uh, joint injuries during this time. So I, I typically just won't fight the, uh, the practice before an event or that first day. Let other people get their wild out. Because, yeah, you show up or you're getting ready and you're like, yeah, I gotta go! I gotta go! And the amount of people that, man, man, oh, first day here. And you're like, oh, that's a bummer, man. And it's, I mean, not always. Sometimes it's just bad luck. But, yeah, it's usually because I got to go. And then, whoops, on the floor. Yeah. So, again, if you're young and bouncy and can take it, then you do what you want. But for those of us who are getting toward the middle age of our, uh, again, you know, we're, we're still relatively young in terms of, like, human years but in terms of like fighter years we are middle-aged at this point yeah 100 percent. but yeah if you if you young springy types want to want to go fight i will watch you i will watch you fight but i'm not going to be out there first day no i'm not even gonna say that learn your good habits learn them now so you you know can stretch it out longer thumbs has spoken so yeah, but this also counts like after a day. So if like you're out there, Thumbs was talking about this beforehand, you want to pace yourself during the actual fighting event as well. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I keep saying 100% today, guys. I'm sorry. The, the people I know that will fight for 8, 10 hours. Oh man, I was on the field since uh, what happened when was curse called. I'm like, the sun is going down. Take breaks during that. I did, uh, I mean, this was for a special occasion, but like when I did my night's trial... I went real hard one day. The next day, I could barely move. Sure. And, yeah, I went to that event, like, for the night's trial. Like, that was a very specific thing. But if I had just fought like that all day and then hadn't been able to move the next, I would have been so mad. Yeah, I actually kind of got caught off guard. My my Dark Angels brethren, they don't want you to be able to rest 
before you do your beat-in. Um, and so you act, they actually like keep you up most of the night beforehand and they make sure you get a good night of heavy or a good day of heavy fighting in the day before. They don't tell you, by the way. They didn't say, hey, we're going to beat him in tomorrow to me. Uh, but I think this was a plan they had decided on. And so then I wake up the next morning. I don't feel good. And they're like, oh, by the way, you're getting beat in. Come on now. I was like, oh, okay, here we go. Great. Thanks, guys. I just tried to thumbs up a podcast. Um. <laughs> but again, that's... That's uh, that's something that we do for our unit for a specific reason. If you have control over the situation, we recommend uh, getting a nice rest in before having to do anything like that. Like absolutely, you know, go full out when you're doing the tournament. Go full out when you're doing, you know, your knights trial or your war masters trial or whatever. But you want other days. You want to definitely keep something in the tank. You definitely don't want to necessarily give it all. Yeah, you. If you know you're going to do a bunch of tourneys the next day maybe take it a little easier to this day, you know? And that doesn't mean don't fight for eight hours. It means stop more often and make sure you're getting more water than you usually would. Yep. Yep, yep. So rest also well after water, the long march. And the reminder that we want to say here is not too long ago, we were talking about Adrianople. If you recall, the Romans arrived after a long march and attempted an engagement. It did not go well for them. So that's all I'm saying on it. <laughs> know the name and capacity of your fellow fighters is our next point to be made and I mean this is pretty obvious just like know who's in your unit know who's in your realm and know kind of who they are what they do what's important you know their capacity and even beyond like oh how they're useful in the field uh, it makes people stay longer when you remember who they are and this is something I have to work really hard on because I am absolutely terrible at names guys I'm real bad. There's people I have worked with for six years, and I have just, it has been way too late for me to ask. But if I can go and, you know, oh, hey, Bob, you were here, you've been to a couple of practices, they go, oh, they remember me. Oh, I'm a part of this community. Short round, please be quiet. No, it certainly helps. Um, and, 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 and that obviously re retainment is something that we like. The bigger our fields can be, the more exciting it is. And so that, that absolutely helps with us. So knowing the name and capacity of your fellow fighters uh, as a leader also is very important. If you're a leader and you don't know who's in your unit or what they can do, you're in trouble. Uh, I've been involved in units before that went through periods of massive expansion, like uh, uncontrolled expansion. And it ended up being that the leaders weren't entirely sure on who was in the unit. I'm pretty sure somebody could have shown up and just claimed to be in the unit and nobody would have been able to correct them. And that's, that's not good either. You want to be able to know who's around and what they're, they're capable of because when you're on the field, you want to know who to put in the middle of the line because they won't run. That's a person you need to know. If you have to guess there, it's a bad day. Yeah, it's a very bad day. In terms of Warhammer 40K, if you're going into your fight, you want to know every one of your units intimately. I basically try to memorize that. I'll keep my rules nearby just for reference, but I want to know movement, ballistic skill, Weapon skill, strength, toughness, attacks, wounds, armor save, invuln, all that stuff. Like, I might want to look up special rules if I need to, but I try to memorize that too. Um, and so that you're not playing guesswork when you get on the field being like, oh, okay, who would be better in this position or not? You just know. You just know who's going to be better. So Belagarth, uh, or physical wargaming or intellectual wargaming, you want to know what you're working with before you get out there. And when you know what you're working with, you want to mix things together, though. You want to intermingle your veterans with your newer recruits. And this is for a couple of reasons. 
Veterans will acquire fresh experience. They're going to learn things they didn't know before from the newer recruits. And the fresh troops are going to be inspired by their courage and going to learn from the, the tips and tricks of the older fighters. It's mutually beneficial. And I know we've talked about that this particular concept before, but it's worth stressing again. Yeah, always, always beware of uh, separating out all of your vets. You, it's easy to think of it. Here's a kill squad, but it can heavily backfire. Yep. And then the other important thing when you're preparing for a general engagement is to learn from others. And, and that source can come from just about anywhere. You can be learning from other units, other realms, books, uh, individuals that you meet. Whatever, wh wherever you can acquire knowledge, that's good. Knowledge is always good. Knowledge is power wherever you are, whatever you're doing. So find it. Go after it. Hopefully that's one of the reasons you're here listening to this podcast is that you value knowledge. No, nothing helps you advance more than just fighting people from out of your realm or yep. like trying new ideas. Oh yeah, and every time something comes through, it changes things. Like when Hakan, uh, the president of Belagarth, first came to Stygia from Numenor, uh, he brought a bunch of that Numenor stuff with him. And th these were things that we had rarely seen. We had seen them from afar on battlefields and events, but we hadn't like been close to it before. And so it was a shock to the system at first, the way he fought and the way he moved. But then people kind of either learned to work with it or learned how to work it, and it became a part of the fabric of the realm. It happened in a smaller portion when I went to Tennessee for a year and I was able to practice with Dur de Marion. I came back and I was doing things and, and moving in a way that you know, Stygia didn't do. For instance, Eastern fighting is far more uh, physical than Western fighting. I like to think of Western fighting a lot of the time as being almost gentlemanly. You know, you fight at like sword's point and it's all very tip fighting and people give each other space and it's, it's just very nice. It's very cordial. The East is not like that. It's a scrum. It is a rough and tumble, smash, drag out, just... Oh man, it was a rude, rude awakening when I got there and just was like put sideways by a man using a shield bigger than me. But I learned quick. I learned quick. And so, it, I mean, it helped. And then like the other Stygians were able to learn from that experience as well. So anytime, anytime you can go and learn and teach and share, that's always better. I actually really liked it once we started picking up a little more heavy shield work. And I mean, we still don't do it a lot, but heavier shield work and a punch shield after I was like, oh, I'm actually physically built for this. Right. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, so the other thing that should be determined before the battle and kind of your homework is the sentiments of the troops. So this would be your sentiments, your how you're feeling personally about the fighting, and then the people who are in your army, or the people who are in your unit or realm or, or whatever group you're going to be going with. Not so much uh, Warhammer <laughs> crossover with this particular one, considering your troops are always gung-ho, they're always ready to go, and their leadership is determined prematurely. Humans, as a general rule, fluctuate. But this confidence or apprehension can be seen. It can be seen in the looks, words, and actions, and motions of the people that you're looking at. You know, if, if we, people are... Oh, what you got? I was going to say, we've talked before, multiple times, about if you go into a fight thinking, I'm going to lose, then you're probably going to lose. And if not, you're going to, at the best case, dishearten all of the people next to you, which makes it more likely that you're going to lose. And again, you can see this. A person who has forward, stooped shoulders, is avoiding eye contact, speaks low, in a, but in a high pitch, 
and perhaps is moving in an erratic way, easily startled. This is not a person at ease on the field. This person is apprehensive about what is a, going to occur. However, somebody who is standing straight-backed, chest uh, thrust out, meeting people's gaze, speaking in strong, confident tones, and moving slowly and with purpose, this is a person to watch out for because this person has confidence in what they're doing. And if you have an entire team that is expressing that confidence, you're really in trouble. Unless you're on that team, then you're looking pretty good. Yeah, that, that's great. That's what that's the goal. Yep. Um, and as we've said before, a lot of this comes from the training that takes place beforehand. If you've been doing your homework, if you've been going to practices, if you've been working at home, this confidence comes from the fact that you know what you're doing. You don't have to affect this, this confidence because it's right there. It's there because you are confident. So that, again, going back to that practice, it's a very important thing. But if you're on the field, you want to remind people of their strengths and advantages. Being on the field is not the time for criticism. That happens in practice. That happens when you're at home or when you're with your group, when you're critiquing what you're doing, when you're trying to make it better. That is the time for criticism. When you are at the event, when it is go time, that is when you try to focus on the good. You try to focus on what you can do. You try, you're trying to focus on what you've worked on, what you feel, co again, confident in doing, and, and really try to be in that. Because that's, that's huge. If you can remember and, and remind your, your team what they're good at. Be like, hey, you know, we may be outnumbered, but we have one of the best uh, shield walls in the sport. So we're, we're going to be good, guys. We're going to be good. And this doesn't mean that you can't, like change plans or realize something isn't working but it you know uh it's very much like hey guys like i see you're trying your hardest but this is we're clearly having trouble here let's try this instead as sure. opposed to hey you know stop dropping your shield i don't know like uh, <laughs> <laughs> fix your grip like telling somebody to fix their grip or try to fix their stance when they're at an event is kind of the wrong time Yes, that's very good. Uh, I just wanted to make sure we t uh, talked about the difference real quick between like changing tactics and critiquing. Oh, you should always change your tactics. Like I, for you guys, the listeners we have in the UK, you'll appreciate this. I'm an Arsenal fan, and this season has been rough for us. And part of the reason for that is because we became predictable. It was always, you know, going down the left side with somebody. That person gets deep left side, crosses to the center to either Lacazette or Aubameyang. They nail it. It goes in. And that was the tactic. And so people found out about soccer? that. Yeah. Yeah. This is English Premier. Or, okay, yeah. cool. I'm, I'm with uh, you now. English Premier League. And, uh, and yeah, so people found out about it. And I was just watching match after match after match of, of defenses that just had our number. And I was getting so frustrated because I was like, we need to mix it up. We have got to do something different. And I was rewarded. The most recent match I watched was against West Brom. And I mean, there was still that, that side attack. They're still going up and, and crossing to the center, but they were doing all sorts of other stuff too. They were really mixing it up and keeping the West Brom guys on their, on their, I mean, West Brom didn't have that much of a defense to begin with and Arsenal just ate them up 4-0 by the end of it. So that was nice to see. But that's what we're saying here. If you're using the same tactic over and over again, and if it's not working especially, not only are you becoming predictable, but you're engaging in something that is kind of disruptive to your overall plan, which is to win, yeah? So for this next point, we are actually going to pick a fight with a dead guy. Uh, because Vegetius recommends you instill in your troops rage, hatred, and indignation. And perhaps if it's a, life or, a real life or death situation, these emotions might be more useful. But when you're in a, a community that has to get together and share food or, or share a fire 
afterwards, then obviously these are not good things. Also, this, this is a good way to get tilted. You know, if you're fueled by rage and hatred, you're easily provoked. And you're, that means you're going to make mistakes. That means you're going to do things that are detrimental to the overall effort. And that's not good. You know, I love it when, my, when somebody across the field has a temper. I will provoke them on purpose. So they'll come out and expose themselves and expose the line. That's great. Yeah, it is a... Fighting mad is a real good way to lose. And mm-hmm. it's a real good way to hurt yourself or others. Yeah. Um, I think this is one of those cases where we've talked about Vegetius is not... He wasn't a soldier. He wasn't a military guy. He... Uh, Barely a historian. And it... Yeah, and it sometimes shows through. And I think this is one of the cases where he showed through because he's like, yeah, man, like, oh, you need to be tough. You need to berserk. But you're way more likely to make a mistake. So, That's true. Uh, I take a much more Yoda approach to this. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And again, part of what he was attempting to instill was uh, it was it was kind of an idea of uh, dehumanizing the enemy. Uh, this has been fairly common in a lot of military conflicts throughout history is to dehumanize the enemy. Um, and this is one of those ways of doing that. But we would recommend replacing these emotional focuses with something else. So instead of trying to teach rage, teach excitement. It's still an up emotion. It's still a motivated emotion, but it's not nearly as sloppy. It's not nearly as reckless. Instead of, I'm so mad, you're going, I'm, this is so awesome. I'm stoked to be here. Yeah, that's great. So, so instill excitement instead of hatred. Instead of indignation, instill pride. Instill pride in your realm, in, a pride in your lineage, pride in your uh, unit, pride in your team, whatever the case may be. Instill pride instead, because pride is something that cannot be taken away. Indignation is reliant on external forces. Pride, on the other hand, is entirely reliant on how you feel about those things. I have pride in my realm. It doesn't, you know, there's a it doesn't really matter what happens concerning that. I have pride with where I come from. And that's just the way it is. I'm getting actually getting a tattoo. I'm getting my realm tattoo on me at some point here pretty quick. I'm amazed I haven't yet, to be me honest too. with you. <laughs> Since you did so much any, helping with the design. I don't have any belt tattoos. Well, we've, we've talked before about the hesitation with getting unit tattoos, but yeah, I think it would be fairly safe to get a, a realm tattoo. I have been going to that same place in the park for over half of my life. I think I've earned it at this point. It's about time. It's about time, yeah. <laughs> Post-COVID, we know what to do now. I'm sorry, that was in place of hatred. In place of hatred, do pride, and in place of indignation, we do enjoyment. Enjoy what you're doing. Enjoy being in the moment. Enjoy sharing a field or sharing a table with your friends or with your community, doing the thing that you love. If you're not into wargaming because you love it, I'm not sure why you're here. Because every time I'm on the field with a sword in my hand, I am on the top of the world. Whenever I'm at a table, moving my little plastic figurines around, there's nothing else that exists. I am there and I am pure, I'm full of joy. And so focus on that, focus on that emotion. Even when I'm frustrated, I'm there because I wanna be there and I'm there because I like it. If I am not having fun, I'm going to just not go for a little while and remember why I like it. Yep. You got to love it. You got to love what you're doing. Otherwise, it's going to show through. And then the last point we want to make here is understanding the enemy takes away fear. If you know your enemy, as we've discussed before, 
uh, you're more likely of victory, but it also takes away the fear of the unknown. Uh, for instance, before I became a member of Triad, or actually before I really knew anybody in Triad, they intimidated me. You know, they, they have some very strict um, garb regulations, for instance, and so they show up on the field all wearing the same colors. They have very refined tactics, and they have very good people because they, they select people based on those sorts of things. And it's easy to be intimidated. It's very easy to be intimidated by a, 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 a well-polished force like that. But then I started hanging out with them and I started going to camps and then eventually I became a dark angel and I came to realize that, I mean, yeah, they take it seriously. Yeah, they practice and yeah, they, they really put the work in, but they're also just people. There's nothing to fear there. It's just something to understand when you're going against them. And this is true with anything. You know, if, I, if you go against a, a, an army in Warhammer and you're like, oh my gosh, like the first time I went up against Eldar, I was like, oh my God, that's... That's unreal. That can't be, how did you, oh, oh, like it just broke my brain. So what did I do? I went and picked up one of the indexes and I looked at Eldar stats. I looked at what they could do. I looked at how their abilities interacted. And the next time I went up against Eldar, I didn't know everything. I couldn't have told you every stratagem they were going to use, but I did have a general idea of what to expect. And that made it a lot easier. You know, to take it a lot more literally, um, after Turkey broke his hand. He yep. was pretty scared of Reds for a while. I mean, legitimately afraid of them because it's what broke his hand. It makes complete and total sense. Right. And part of how he got over that was he picked up a Red himself and practiced with it. It's the same thing. You want to know how to beat it, use it. Yep. If you want to know how not to be scared of it, also use it. Because you figure out its limitations, you figure out its motion, all that sort of thing. Yep, 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 yep. I almost no. said 100% again. Oh 100%. Oh <laughs> All right. I don't know why I become a wrestler off of that, but I did. So, yeah, that's that's homework. Uh, those are the kind of things you want to be thinking about, either uh, the practice or two before or on the way to your event. These are good ideas to have in mind. But I think uh, we're ready to head on to the next section. What do you think, Thumbs? I think we're set. All right. Well, let's talk about how you get the upper hand. talked several times now about different ways to get the upper hand in a fight or at least beforehand when we've talked about things like positioning and where you're going to locate certain key elements we've gone over them in kind of uh in a vague sense vegetius here provides us with a lot more of an accurate framework for discussing this so we figured that we'd go through it again some of this information you've probably heard before but it also helps to go over it uh, another time within a different context so the first thing to consider when considering how to get the upper hand is positioning. Um, the elements are the first thing that you should be looking at. Sun, wind, and dust are uh, lethal to your, to your effort. If you have the sun in your eyes, you can't see. If the wind is coming at you, your arrows are going to have trouble flying. And if dust is in that wind, it's doubling the issue of, of the not being able to see. And, and Thumbs and I do things a little bit differently here. I... In just about every single fight I have, I will try to position my opponent with their eyes toward the sun. Thumbs thinks that this is a jerk move on my part, and he's probably right, but I am a war master, not a knight. <laughs> and I'm looking for victory every time. Uh, it it 100% depends on like the fight that I'm doing. 
especially if I'm fighting like a newer person or something like that, which is something I end up doing a lot of, or used to do a lot of. Not this year. Realm. Uh, uh, yeah, definitely not this year. Well, I'll be new. It's it'll be great. Um, <laughs> being like they'll get themselves in the sun and me being like, no, no, let's face this way. You have enough things you're thinking about right now. Or if it's just like a nice chill fight between friends or something, if it is a fight that I care about, I 100% will do everything I can to get the sun in their eyes. And the wind against their arrows and the dust moving mm-hmm. in their direction. Sure, sure. Oh, wind. That's always trying to work that one in my favor. I don't mess with that one. Right. <laughs> yeah, javelins and arrows are a real thing. And it's not just javelins and arrows. Big wind situations, be aware of what position your shield is in compared to the wind. Yeah. Yeah, if you catch it like a sail, you'll fly away. Especially if you use a backpack shield like I do. Learn mm-hmm. from my mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, poles, mm-hmm. same thing. So yeah, so the elements to the rear. Yes. <laughs> That's the idea. High ground. We've discussed high ground a lot. You want to have the high ground if there is high ground. It's less effort to fight down than it is to fight up. Look, Obi-Wan Kenobi taught us this in like 2007, and it remains true yeah. to this day. Yeah, Anakin did not learn it then. Be, be Learn better than Anakin. Be better than Anakin. That's what I'm saying here. Which shouldn't be terribly hard, to be honest with you. Pretty low bar. Just... Pretty low bar. Don't don't slaughter a temple full of younglings. You'll be all right. And also, don't contest the high ground. That's Find your own <laughs> high ground. Uh, so the other thing to consider is this open plains versus rough ground situation. Again, we've talked about this. If you're in open plains, you want to make sure that you're... That you've got the calf, that you're going to be able to move. Now, again, in physical war gaming, we don't actually have horses, so we can be a bit more flexible. If you've got an open field, take advantage of it. Make sure that if you've got fast people, that they are out there moving. Now, that being said, if you've got denser ground or rough ground, uh, condense your people, hold choke points, and you, and use them more as infantry in that case. But in both cases, you can play to your to your benefit. 40k, you know this 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 absolutely works as well. You, if you have, if you've got open ground there, you want to make sure that you're deploying your cav there, your fast attack, whatever it is, whereas your infantry is making sure to stay in the terrain and kind of contest key points. So the last thing on positioning to talk about is just the positioning between people. I think we've said before that you want a sword length between you and the person next to you. Now this is not a double sword length where both of you put out your swords and you're just like tip to tip out there. That's not what we're talking about. Just a single sword length away from the person on the side. And then you'd have the same on the other side because they're extending their sword toward you. And that gives you a nice space on either side. So you're not hitting people when you're swinging, but it's not big enough for somebody to rush through there easily. At the same time, when you were doing this, this is, you know, when we're saying know your people, know who is left-handed and do not put them in the middle or the right side of this. Put them over on the left side where the rule will be slightly different. Because if both of if a right-handed person and a left-handed person are swinging swords in the same space, they're going to hit each other. I've punched so many people on accident. And it is now just automatic for me, being like, nope, switch with me. Nope. I'll try to do it to you, and you're also left-handed. Then we go, wait, <laughs> nope, it doesn't matter. Wait We're a minute. We We're good. We're good. I don't even know how it would be done. It would absolutely love it to get an entire line of like left-handed fighters. <laughs> You'd have to put some effort into that. Oh, it'd be so hard, but if you could do it and watch just the sheer confusion as, like, the full side of left-handed and everyone who's, like, all ready for the fight goes, wait, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, that'd be terrifying. 
So yeah, that that is a consideration. Again, oftentimes if I'm in the in a, like a line situation, I will try to move to the leftmost side so that I'm not punching people and not being punched accordingly. So yeah, that's that's just a good idea. But then you want a body length between the front and the back, a little bit more room to maneuver. There are a few situations where this is not the case. For instance, in bridge battles, or a lot of the times, just the sheer weight of bodies against the other people, because you got that shield scrum going on in the middle of the bridge, that makes all the difference. Just people pushing on one another can topple the other line. So in a case like that, you want to be nice and close. And you're not really worrying about maneuvering, because if you're in the front, your job is to go forward and or die. And if you die, your job is to get out of the way, so that the person behind you can then go forward and or die. But if the idea is that there's that constant momentum forward, think about Russia in the in the in the war against Germany. In the and always, and the always, yeah. So that's the idea right there. It's more advantageous to engage in close order than it is to spread out the line too much. I know it's our, our, all of our tendencies to want to cover as much space as possible. But as Sun Tzu said, if you defend everywhere, you are weak everywhere. So it's it's better to if you're going to err on the side of one side or the other, it's better to be cl too close together than it is to be too spread out. We've talked about this many many times, and we're going to continue to talk about it many many times because it is one of the most kind of iconic in a weird way feelings of Belagarth. The realization that you have taken one step too far and you are mm. now open. Yep. And then you suddenly got three people that dart behind your line, and you're like, uh oh, <laughs> whoops. I am not recovering from this exact moment. I saw our turkey feathers and our archers are gone. They're gone. They're gone. It's over. This was fun. Um, you might trip over each other a little more if you're right in, but it is harder to get swarmed. And if you're a realm or a unit and you can practice together quite a bit, you can get around a lot of that uh, clumsiness of fighting close together. If you are used to it, for instance, the, the BOF practice it. I know the Urukai practice it, fighting in nice and close. So when they get into that kind of situation, they're not feeling pressed on either side because they're accustomed to it. Uh, it's not a big deal. So the next thing we want to talk about, because that's positioning. Those are just some, some points that I think we've touched on most of them before in positioning. Uh, the next idea is where command is issued. Now, he has this as the general, the second-in-command, and the third-in-command, really just your, your highest-ranking people or your loudest people. I know that some units don't necessarily have a rank structure, but they have leaders that emerge, different people who are, who are good at giving commands within a highly stressful field situation. And so those are the people we're talking about here. On larger fields, you might have three or four people. On a lot of average-sized bell fields, it's going to be much closer to two, if we're being honest here. Or one, like if you're if you're on a five on five or even a ten on ten situation, you're probably going to be looking at one person calling the shots. Um, two's not a bad idea, but one's usually it. Uh, so yeah, the general. The idea with the general is that they should be center right, commanding the infantry and the active cav. Now we call them active cav because I, I think we've gone into this before. Why the right side is generally used uh, more aggressively than the left side, and this is entirely based on what hand most people use, which is right-handed. So what's in the left hand? The shield. That means as they're advancing forward, the shield is covering the m more of their body in regards to the army that they're going against. They've got their shield passively able to guard them, so they're able to move forward with greater confidence. The left side, however, if they're all right-handed, are open on their right side as they go forward. So any arrow that comes, any, any shot that you need to block, you're leaning across your body in order to do that. And so just based on that, on those physics, 
the left side of the line is generally weaker than the right side of the line, just as a general rule. And so that's why you have this active cav, because you're assuming that the active cav are going out and attempting to envelop the other line. They're trying to surround, they're trying to harass, they're trying to, to break up the unit cohesion to such a degree that the infantry can do their work. That's the active cav, right? So your, your, your commanderist commander, your general, should be kind of center right, commanding infantry and active cav. If you have to have only one person, that's where they should be. If you can have a second person, that person should be in the center with the main infantry and reserves. This person needs to be fairly boisterous. You want somebody, I would honestly recommend a polearm because that's gonna be somebody who's back far enough from the fight that they don't necessarily, they're not gonna die quickly in most cases and that they're able to kind of see with a greater field of vision and make calls based on that. People like Sir Juggernaut are people that I think of in cases like this. Someone who's, I mean, Jug uses a shield a lot too, but you know, sure. someone who is physically big and someone who can be that center point in holding the line, whether mm -hmm. they're in the line itself or a little behind, like you just recommended, this is not the person that is going to go sprinting. This is not your turkey feathers. This is, I don't know, sometimes it's me. Someone that can be the anvil to the right side's hammer. You know, and, and what comes to mind for me is I, I met this fighter in Der Demarion, who I think, like, if I could pick my center commander in, like, a fantasy Belagarth league or something like that, I would pick Vokor of Der Demarion, because not only is the man built like a fridge, he can holler like a drill sergeant, and he's got good tactical awareness. When I've been listening to him holler things out, he's got it together. So not only can he be a strong center point on which to anchor, but he's got that deep carrying voice that just everybody can hear and responds to immediately. He, also, in a side note, nicest guy off the field. Just a, just a big teddy bear, basically. Like, uh, give you the shirt off his back. Wonderful human being. That helps tremendously. But great commander as well. Like, he's, he's one of the, the big the big up and ups in that area and, and for good reason. And then the third, if you should happen to have a, a, a large enough force to justify having a third person who's in command, they go on the left and they're managing the passive cavalry and the defensive side there. Now this person needs to be careful and intrepid because they're managing a difficult situation. Like we said, the left side is gonna be the side most likely to be imperiled, nine times out of 10. If you've been on a Belagarth field, you will know the term toilet bowling when everybody starts to circle and all the teams are kind of circling the center and trying to like feel each other out who's going to make the move watch most of the time it goes counterclockwise people want their shields facing the enemy that's just how it is yeah i think i i was trying to think about this i think i go left a lot but that makes sense with what you're talking about we feel stronger on the left side. We don't have to worry about arrows as much. We don't have to, javelins aren't as much of a thing as we're running around. Our defensive side is toward, yeah. If I'm, especially if I'm gonna flank, I wanna be on the left, no doubt. This was really interesting because it was a thing I didn't even, I, I had to ask you about this from the notes. I was like, wait, why? I still don't get why we always go to the right or why the right is where to come in. Now I know, learn something new every day. The majority of fighters are right-handed. So a lot of these tactics are, are made for, to, with that in mind. So yeah, that's, that's where you want your, your commanders to be, is kind of in those locations in order to cover the best ground. So if you only have one, make sure that they're center right so they can kind of have that under, because if, if a side is gonna give, it's gonna be the left and you don't want your commander <laughs> going down with the, uh, the ship in this particular case. So we know of the commanders, but what of the cavalry? 
where do we want to position cavalry? Well, we've talked about having them on the wings, obviously, out, out toward the sides on the flanks, but there's obviously different types of cavalry. Heavy, heavy cavalry, so think about like cataphracts, a Byzantian cataphract is a very good example of heavy cav. They have plate on their plate with more plate. It's just a mounted of metal charging at you. Your traditional medieval era armored European knight would also qualify here. Like anyone who's just looks like they're the Tin Man. Yep. And now they belong close to the infantry. They form up near the infantry in order to assist those actions. These cavalry are fulfilling what is known as the shallow flanker roll. There are two different types of flanker, and the heavy cav is what you want in a shallow roll. They're still technically kind of infantry at that point, especially when we're talking about like a Belagarth or a physical wargaming situation. You want these people to still be relatively well armored because they're going to be in the thick of it. They just can kind of pick where they want to go to assist a little bit more. So that's, that's the heavy cav. I often end up playing kind of heavy cav because I like to be a switch fighter and I like to flank, but I go out there fully armored so I don't need to be sprinting every single time. Yeah, you and I hang out in this category of we don't like to be in the line, but we're not going running anymore. Uh, At least not far. Not far. <laughs> the dwarves are natural sprinters. Let's just put it that way. Uh, <laughs> it is my favorite place to fight, honestly. I I legitimately enjoy it more than anywhere else. That, that really deep where you can get behind them is fun, but it can be so much more of a crapshoot. I have so many more options when I'm hanging out right here. And again, this is because we both have full kits of armor. Thank you, by the way, for my full kit of armor. Hey. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the other one, though. The light cavalry are, are, of course, out on the wide flanks, and their job is to surround the enemy and cause general disorder. Again, they're not there to get into a general engagement. If, if light cavalry get into a pitched combat, they've done something wrong. Their job is to be moving around, breaking up the line, taking shots of opportunity where they can. But uh, again, their job is not to necessarily go to a fixed point. And so again, we, we know lots of people who would qualify as light cav. I, I started off as light cav. I loved being a flanker. I loved it. In real battles, this would also include people like horse archers. Right. Yep. Who are not going to just charge straight forward because that's a real case of diminishing returns in that case. Right. And in terms of uh, Warhammer, if we're talking about this, your, your heavy cav are going to be your, anything with like a five or six toughness is going to kind of qualify as your heavy cav. Anything with a lower toughness than that is going to be light cav. So you want them kind of out of the way running these, these outside maneuvers. Again, their, their job is not necessarily get into pitched combat right away. They are a harassment and a screening force. But a consideration, what if you have less cavalry than your opponent? And we're talking like significantly less, not like I've got 200 or they've got 200 and I've got 198. We're talking like maybe maybe double or something like that. In yeah, which they've case, got 200, I've got 100. Right. And so in which case you want all of your cavalry to stay relatively close to the main infantry body so they can mutually support one another. The last thing, because most battles start with a cav battle. The cav come out or your light flankers come out and they have their little skirmishes out there and then the regular line joins. So if you've got significantly less flankers, significantly less cav than your opponent and they all run out there and die first thing, well now not only are you less some fighters, but where did your counter flankers go? I, I, 
Bye bye. Really, if your cavalry is so outnumbered that they're just gonna die if this happens, then they're just counterflankers now. That's great. It is better to, you know, as we mentioned earlier, it is better to protect a smaller area than it is to die piecemeal across a large battlefield. Right, right. Because if you're all spread out and your opponent is condensed, that means that they've got local numeric superiority wherever they go. And you don't want to give that away. So the last thing we want to talk about in gaining this upper hand is something that Vegetia has, has stressed quite a bit, and Frederick stressed quite a bit, which is reserves. Having a dedicated reserve force, and this is how you have the numbers for it. If, you've, if you're doing five on five, you don't necessarily have the people to put back in reserves. You could probably have one person. No, you don't want a reserve at that point. At that point, you're actively working against yourself by taking away 20% of your army. Yeah, that's a good point. So again, this depends on size, but if you have the size to be able to have reserves, uh, you want them for the wings and the center. Make sure that you've got designated reserves for both wings and center because uh, you can't just be drawing from one place and they need to be expeditious because the purpose of these reserves is threefold. They're designed to assist hard-pressed areas of the line, prevent penetration, and supply vacancies made in action. Pretty straightforward. The vacancies is the one that you and I talk about the most, and it's our other favorite place to to fight. Uh, it is really nice if you can have, you know, again, if you have the people, like three or four people set up for that position. So, you, oh, hey, you go over there, but now it's not committing everything. Right. Uh, exactly. So, again, depends on the numbers, but if you can have reserves, do have reserves, because they can make the difference between life and death in a battle. Speaking of which, I think it's about time for us to talk about a battle. Oh, let's go to battle now. Before we get there, a quick week crap. <laughs> a quick reek. Quick week crap. <laughs> a quick recap. Um, we've talked about the preparation for general engagement. You know, the different things that you need to do before getting there, eating, uh, the risks that you run going in there, and kind of how to get the best out of your learning experience. Uh, you should be looking at your sentiments, not just for yourself, but also of your team. And in trying to gain the upper hand, we're looking at things like positioning, where your commanders are in terms of the army, the disposition of your cavalry, and how to best use your reserves. And I think we're going to see all of these play out when we talk about the Battle of Gogamelon. Almost our entire episode last week came from me reading about this battle. Battle of you said it's Gaugamela. I think it's Gaugamela. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a, not 100 percent on that pronunciation. You think I would read what like listen to what these are called sometimes before I announce them, but I never seem uh, to. This is more fun this way. And I went, oh man, like to understand the Battle of Gaugamela, you really have to understand the Battle of Vissus, and to understand the Battle of Vissus, you have to understand the Battle of. I don't remember what the one before that was, uh, Granicus River, maybe? And to understand that, you really need to understand blah, blah, blah. And I went farther and farther back, and I eventually was like, nope, let's just move on. Uh, but it is still useful to understand this battle, to understand the battle before it, or the big battle before it, the Battle of Issus. There were, there were a lot of battles in 
Alexander's conquest of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, but there were kind of three big ones, with the Issus being the second one and Gaugamela being the third. Issus was the first time that Alexander went up against the King of Kings, the Great King, uh, Darius III. Possibly Darius III, again, I've heard it multiple ways. When you're going back this far in time, it's hard to guess. And in the Battle of Issus, there was a random opening. Alexander starts charging down Darius, and Darius, in the great golden chariot led by white horses, the ultimate king of kings, the, like, he's not quite a demigod, but he's about as close as you're going to get in this day and age, bolts. He's out. He runs away. Completely understandably, as far as I'm concerned. But, less understandably, he leaves his family at the battlefield. That's not a good look. I don't even know why he brought them in the first place. Kicks? Giggles? See Daddy at work? I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, really, see Daddy at work is probably the best. It was a way to show off. Uh, But it's like his, I want to say his mother and sisters and wife. uh, I mean, there are multiple people that Alexander now has as his prisoners. In all likeliness... These people were probably treated pretty well because they were still royalty, even if they were Persian royalty. We discussed this in the last episode when uh, we were talking about royal hostages. If you remember uh, that uh, Philip was a royal hostage and he was treated fairly well, but it still isn't a, you're still a prisoner. Yeah, you are still definitely the word hostage and they will kill you if they have to. Mm -hmm. Darius writes starts writing to Alexander while regathering an army. Over the next, like, two years before this next big battle happens, being like, hey, Alexander, give me my family back. He's like, well, I will, if you come submit to me. If you come admit to that I'm, like, the king of all Asia, then I'll let you have your family back. But if you think you're still the king, you gotta take it. And, you know, poor Darius, who honestly didn't even seem like he wanted the job that bad he was installed by the guy who poisoned the guy before him right uh was like oh oh man okay i guess i gotta do this and so he spends a couple of years at babylon building together an army and sending messages to alexander being like please stop attacking oh my god please take your ball go home everyone thought you were going to be dead by now and you keep taking over egypt has surrendered to alexander peacefully which is just saying that sentence is insane. Egypt would riot at the drop of a hat, and they were like, all right, yeah, we'll go with that guy. That's fine. And I think we've discussed before the strategic importance of Egypt. It is and, oh, yeah. and was for, a, for about as long as human history has been a key part of the world in, in terms of controlling both Africa and the Middle East. So even while preparing this army, Darius is sending more messages. It has one of my favorite little bits of ancient smack talk. Of He gives him a truly insane offer. He's like, I will give you half of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. At this point, Alexander kind of controlled half, but sure, whatever. We'll, you know, still, I'll give you half of my empire. That's more land than a Greek has ever owned, or more than a Macedonian could even consider. And one of Alexander's generals, who weren't necessarily expecting this to go as far as it did, was like, hey man, we're really outnumbered. That sounds like a really great deal. I I would take it if I was Alexander. And Alexander, being the wannabe godling drunk that he was, looks over mm-hmm. and he goes, well, I would take it too. 
if I was Parmenio. Oh! Oh! Drop the mic, yeah. Did he bring any aloe for that sick burn? Sick, sick burn. And after a lot of this being catchy to each other, it becomes very obvious that the next battle is happening, and it is time for the battle of, I've already forgotten the name, Gogamella. Gogamella. It's very late for me, guys. So the the timeline on this, yeah, it's it's like the very end of Thumbs' day and like <laughs> midday for me, um, which is why I always seem so chipper. So uh, the timeline on this isn't very long. It was 333 BCE when Darius III lost the Battle of Issus. And the battle that we're talking about, the Battle of Gogamella, took place in, on October 1st of 331 BCE. So only two years uh, between these two. Now, in terms of where this is at, it's near current Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan. So if you want to look it up on a map, um, it's, they think it was fairly near to that area. Again, ancient history, it's hard to kind of pinpoint these things. If it seems like two years is a long time, because, you know, we're used to World War II. It lasted, what, four years total right. for us, for, you know, America. Remember that these people, the fastest you can go is the speed of a horse or the speed of your infantry. And or Alexander, boat. Yeah, or boat. And Alexander is kind of just ping-ponging across the Achaemenid Persian Empire at this point. As we said, Egypt just surrendered to him. They didn't want to play. He had to cross the Hellespont, go play everywhere he was going, go all the way down to Egypt, and then head all the way up to Iraq. Well, you know, besieging cities at the same time. So, like, this is... This is light speed. This is the German Wehrmacht. He's he's partying all over Asia Minor at this point. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that following year in 332 BCE, like you were saying, uh, Tyre falls in a siege. And that kind of gives Alexander the control of the vaunt. Egypt surrendered peacefully. And throughout this time, of course, that diplomacy attempt is going. Darius is offering more and more and more things. Uh, and Alexander, of course, is saying, yeah. I'm coming for you. Alexander was very determined that there could only be one king of Asia. And when we say Asia, we mean Asia Minor. We mean the Middle East. We mean probably India. He got pretty into the idea of owning India later on. Yeah. Uh, we're not talking China here. Not talking the Mongol steppes. Nobody wanted to go there. Nobody wanted Russia. Yeah. If we knew about or not we, if Alexander knew about China, it was probably, you know, mostly pretty vague rumor from, like, the Scythians. And the Scythians were the crazy horse, crazy horse archers, crazy horse archer. So who knows what to expect there. Yeah, the Silk Road actually being any sort of thing was still a, a couple hundred years off at this point. So, and again, I mean, I know the Silk Road was, there's not a road across Asia called the Silk Road. It was just a, a series of people who were exchanging information, ideas, and goods. And it just happened to go from, like, China to Europe. Useful, though. But it wasn't an actual, like, thing thing. Very useful. Very useful. And, and uh, I mean, it started pr fairly early, but probably not at this point. So, yeah, in 331, early in 331, Alexander starts making his moves. Starts heading over. And he arrives at the river Euphrates near Thapsacus. And he scatters the 3,000, like there was 3,000 cavalry that were, were put there and he was, and Darius said, you guard this point and you make sure that Alexander doesn't cross it. And then Alexander rolls up with his roughly 47,000 troops and these uh, 3,000 cav very wisely choose to leave that location. 
yeah, there is a much better place you can use that 3,000 people. Yeah. And then Alexander moves, but not in a way that was expected. So they really expected Alexander to go south because it was a much shorter trip. But it was also a much hotter trip. I mean, remember, we are talking Iraq at this point. When it gets hot in that desert, it gets hot. And the reason for this expectation was previous invaders had chosen this route. Uh, like Thumb said, it was the most direct route, and so it seemed the most logical. But it was hot. Very hot. And there wasn't much food. Or water. Or water. You know, if you can cross the Gobi Desert, man, that's a quick way of doing it. That's something else. That's not Iraq. Say we're, we're not at the Gobi Desert right now. <laughs> no, I was thinking of the Mongols there, uh, and I forgot to, you know, enter this example but you know if you can cross the desert quickly and fast then that's great but the chances of your troops still being fresh at the end of it it's remarkably bad oh yeah all the all the invading forces from the west who had attempted it arrived dehydrated hungry and exhausted obviously it did not go well for them this is what this was the ideal though this is what darius was hoping for because it would have been an easy win However, Alexander wasn't a guy to give away easy wins, and so he, he takes the northern route, again, less direct, but there's also less heat and better forage. While it takes more time, his army isn't going to arrive in the same manner that the Persians are used to facing in this location. Well, and in some ways, the more time kind of is working in Alexander's favor, too, because now the Persians have this, like, wait, where did he go? <laughs> like did we just lose alexander because that's not good we need to have eyes on this guy so yeah he, he uh continues on his way he crosses the tigris and he is taking prisoners at this point and they say of where darius is they say okay he's over there Babylon. Um, again i imagine that most people uh would not keep such information you know they're sitting there being like well you could be treated well or you could be tortured where's your king at he's yonder He's yonder. Can I please get a biscuit now? Yeah, so he, they, they move on. Uh, and then Darius chooses a large open plain. Darius had uh, chariots, remember. And so, of course, like we had been talking about, he actually chose a location that was suited for his army. He had chariots, he had elephants, and this, this plain was a perfect place to deploy both. Well, and this is one of the things of... Darius has gotten a lot of crap throughout history for not being the world's greatest general but this is him showing real signs of growth from the last battle part of the problem with the battle of Issus is he chose too small of a battlefield and his cavalry didn't have room to, to maneuver maneuver yeah and he got trapped and the superior fighters on alexander's side made that win so he is taking steps to counter this in I mean, really hardcore steps. He picks a battlefield something like five miles long. Like, he has up to that much room to work with. He has his army go across flattening the ground, like stomping things flat to make sure that his chariots would have the maximum room to move on. And basically gardening, too. They were removing any large roughage or plant life that was there, too. Anything that could be an obstacle. This is pretty close to the end of chariot reasons. And this is kind of why we're reaching, in a lot of ways, the end of the chariot era. Because chariots had to be on the flattest ground possible. Yeah. And deployed in mass. One war chariot is not that impressive. But you, if you have an entire fleet... I know they're not called fleets, but bear with me, entire fleet of war chariots, that was a different thing. And Darius did. 
have his fleet of war chariots. And so Darius possesses the larger army by far. Uh, again, I think I had mentioned that Alexander had roughly 47,000 troops under his command. Uh, Darius had anywhere, modern estimates put it between 50,000 and 100,000. The ancient estimates were even bigger. Ancient estimates had up to a million people on Darius' side. This is in no way true. There, I mean, no. literally, even on this five-mile battlefield, that would have, there's no way he could have fit a million people. And two, I don't care how good Alexander is, that is outnumbered, I mean, 47,000 to a million. That's bad. That is, that is, I am bad at math right now. I can't think of what that would be, but that is an obscene number to one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, that, that would good. not be, but, uh, more of a two to one, three to one situation. Yeah. That's, that's more of Alexander's forte. That's kind of where he thrived. But either way, Darius had the larger army, but Alexander had the better quality. If you recall from our last episode, discussing all of the efforts that Philip made into having the best fighting force in Greece, Macedonia, and apparently Asia Minor, Alexander inherited all of that. So the, the phalanx and its amazing training that went with it uh, were with Alexander. And recall that this phalanx is going to be the dominant form of military tactic until the Romans change and adopt the legion tactic well and not just this at this point these guys are battle-hardened professionals they have been on this campaign for years in the middle of enemy territory these are the best troops in the world like at this era of history i don't know if there's another army that i would really want to compare them against not in the area china had a, a decent showing at this point and yeah that's about it <laughs> I can't think of anybody else. Usually I give China the edge just because they were, you know, such a high quality form of war. I don't know if Alexander could have given them a run for their money, but he could have made them work for it. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, obviously China wasn't invincible. They were ruled by the Mongols for a while. But but yeah, no, it, it, obviously this is a good army. So we've got the two armies, the field is set, and the engagement begins. The infantry centers begin to advance first. And Alexander at this point chooses to do something that's kind of weird. He and his uh, band of companions go hard right. Like uh, the, the, like a, a shallow flank, as we were talking about before. It's a shallow like flanking maneuver, but they're going hard for this location. And Alexander is right in the thick of it. Uh, right at the front of it, if some accounts are to be trusted. By all accounts, Alexander, you know, if you make a, a spear point of a thousand men formation to charge, Alexander is going to be the guy at the very, very front of that. And even if some of this was exaggerated because of the press corps that we mentioned last week that he took yep. with him, it was still, even if he wasn't the very front man, he was very close. He was in the thick of it. We do know that. And so uh, Darius repositions his calf in order to try to contain uh, this other calf. And so a, a kind of a brutal fighting ensures, ensues on uh, the Macedonian Hellenic League right flank, the, uh, of course, the Persian left flank. And the, one of the only reasons the Macedonians hold out here is because they were using reserves. Every time a unit got too worn out or lost too many people, it could be switched out with a fresh unit. And so that made the Macedonians so much more able to resist the larger Persian numbers because they were constantly filtering in uh, fresh, better quality troops. 
And so next comes the, the, the thing we've all been waiting for, which is the chariots. Darius deploys the chariots, and they race across the perfect open ground toward their opponents, who open their ranks and let them through. This is something the chariots were not really ready to deal with, because chariots don't turn wonderfully well. easy, especially big big scythe chariots that have these big, you know, scythe sword bits on the side. Uh, we are not 100% sure what Persian scythe chariots would look like. Like, we have Chinese scythe chariots, but because lots of cultures came up with this idea of, hey, we've made a chariot, what if we put big swords on the side? They were used in, in Africa, too. I know that the uh, the Egyptians had to deal with it on several occasions. Uh, and they were theoretically used by the Celts later on. Mm-hmm. But Alexander's phalanxes were able to split apart so the chariots would go through and get back together and reform well enough because, as we mentioned, they're an insanely good army. Uh, and Darius's troops weren't able to really take advantage of the momentary uh, disruption of having to break up the phalanxes to stay out of the way of the chariot. If they had been able to bring in more cavalry, for example, at this point, that would have been really effective to feed up. But at this point, they have put in so much cavalry over on that side that most of their cavalry is busy fighting Alexander. So the normal support that would be there for the war chariots just wasn't there. Um, And it actually sounds like Darius or Darius's generals have been like, no, send the cavalry after Alexander. Because if we can take him out, at this point... You know, his men are starting to think he's the God King. He's absolutely convinced he's the God King from this point on. If he can stop Alexander, then it's over. It is done. But it doesn't work quite as well as all of that. Also, we mentioned at the very beginning, there were elephants, but we don't actually see them in the battle. This is a place where elephants might have been useful. Oh, yeah. Having some elephants and some cavalry to back up those chariots, that would have been... That would have been focusing on the right thing. I think what Darius did wrong here is he tried to do too much. He had he had his attention split in so many different directions that he wasn't able to commit, really, to one of his ideas. Well, and we don't 100% know why the elephants don't seem to have been involved in this battle. Like, everyone talks about them in the setup for the battle. But during the battle itself, elephants don't really come up, and... I mean, I've never been in a battle with elephants, so I can't say this with, like, 100% certainty, but I'm pretty sure any battle an elephant is in, you're going to know where that elephant is. That's notable. That's a very notable thing. Uh-huh. Uh, one theory is, you know, as we mentioned, this place is very hot. This is Baghdad. This is Iraq. Uh, it is possible that the elephants were just not in a good condition to fight, and it was considered not worth the risk. Or 100,000 other reasons that were just not quite aware that of we will moment. never know because it's been 2500 years but what we do know is that the elephants were not present and the chariot attack did not work so if you recall alexander was moving to the right with a lot of speed as he's beginning to win this cavalry engagement he then forms a wedge with his troops and turns toward the persian center and comes in hard right for darius who again flees the battlefield This is the second time now. Fleeing once can be forgiven. Fleeing twice, Alexander has now proclaimed himself your boss. Mm -hmm. And at this point, it has become just a matter of time until the Empire is entirely Alexander's, until Darius is done. I mean, Darius is done. He's just will limp along for another couple of years after this. He never gets another battle like this. 
He very well could have been captured right here. Alexander had a golden opportunity to end it all and capture Darius right here, but he chose not to because his left wing, remember we were saying that that's the most uh, vulnerable spot, was embattled. The Persians didn't just call off the attack because Darius fled. They were still coming. And so his left wing was in trouble, and Alexander chose to pull back and come over and help his left wing, which saved his army. Long term, this was the best move to make. Because he could have gotten Darius, but he would have lost a good portion of his army doing so. So he actually made a very good tactical decision here. But the Persian forces divide. Instead of coming together like the Greeks did, the Persian forces divide, and part of them go to hit the camp in order to, to take Darius's family back, who, at least according to the accounts I were re was reading, didn't want to go back. How much that's true is hard to say, and how much... I mean, it, it is possible they didn't want to go back, but it's possible the reason why is they went, oh, Alexander won this battle. Right. Yeah, we don't want to go to the losing side, sure. Yeah, no. Uh, so, I mean, that's an important part of the battle, but also, when you read about that, make sure to ask yourself the reasons why that Alexander's press corps would have not really wanted to talk about because it's way easier to say, no, they like it here. Right, right, that's true. Uh, who knows the validity of what the victors <laughs> say about the the captured. But that becomes it. The Persians are, are defeated and routed and Alexander claims another victory. Darius, uh, like you say, limps on to, to rule another day, but is ultimately assassinated by one of his underlings, Bessus. Now, again, we a lot of people choose to dar remember Darius in a negative light, but as we discussed before, he wasn't all bad. In terms of being an overall ruler, he proved fairly effective before Alexander came over and started partying all over Asia Minor. Yeah, he was he was good at keeping the satraps in order. He had put down several rebellions successfully. So, I mean, he wasn't a bad ruler. He wasn't a bad commander. He actually kind of knew what he was doing. He just couldn't anticipate Alexander. Yeah, he just went up against one of the most brilliant tactical minds, especially, like, on-field, in-the-moment tactical minds that had ever existed up to this point in history. With one of the best armies ever created. Yeah, that is a super fair thing to have trouble with. <laughs> yeah. Last thing that I mentioned, just because it tied back to earlier stuff, is we have talked... I, I, I talked a lot about how the Persian army used to really heavily favor archery. Super into archery. And I noticed when I was reading in this, archery is not a big part of this battle one way or the other. Right. And part of the reason why here is because... Uh, especially as Persia grew weaker, they started to bring in more hoplites, especially once they had learned that the Persian troop setup was not very effective against Greek hoplites, you know, because they were very archer-heavy and the hoplites were very armor-heavy and big shield-heavy and didn't care nearly as much about the archery. Um, there is something like 3,000 Greek hoplite troops working for Darius in this battle. And unfortunately in the kind of rock-paper-scissors setup of battle, archers would have worked a lot better, I think, against Alexander's army than, say, yeah. these Greek hoplites would, because these hoplites are going up against the phalangites that uh, Philip made last battle, and the phalangites aren't nearly as heavily armored, but their spear is three times longer. Yep. So they reach out and touch the hoplites before they even have a chance of doing the same back. The phalangites were a major part 
of his victory, I believe, in both this and Issus. Which makes sense. Again, this this phalanx setup is going to be a dominant form of warfare for the next foreseeable future, at least until the Romans transform it yet again. So within this Battle of Gogamela, we can kind of see all of the different elements that we've discussed this episode. And in in doing so, um, I hope that we kind of drive home these points that while, again, some of these things may not, again, you may want to spread out, you may not want to have reserves, commit everything on the beginning. A lot of these ideas may be counterintuitive, but they work. They work. And, And you have to be willing to shift that plan in the moment because obviously Alexander did, and that helps. You can't be predictable. That's a bad thing. But that's our show for the night. Uh, we, yeah, I, I, I did the recap too early, so I don't want to do it again for you. But <laughs> you guys know what's, what we're talking about. You've been here for the last hour and a half with us, which we appreciate. We do. Um, and we'll we'll be back again in two weeks, and we'll be talking. This will be the last episode of Vegetius that we'll be doing. So a nice little wrap-up. We're going to be doing his maxims and all that sort of thing, and just a, a good little episode to kind of bring all of Vegetius together. If you're wanting more Art of War Gaming in the meantime, however, you can go over to our Instagram or Facebook at The Art of War Gaming. You could email me directly, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any uh, criticisms, insights, uh, ideas that you might have, gene stealer cult information, hey oh. <laughs> hint, hint, hint. And then if you're looking for more things to listen to, we've got a bunch of great shows over at the Earworm Network. Yeah, you can go listen to General Nerdery, or you can listen to Fried Squirms, which is about horror movies. Uh, hopefully soon you'll be listening to Noob Island, as mentioned earlier on. There is just a whole host of things, and there is even more coming in 2021. Um, I'm very excited. And we're very excited to see where that goes. But I think for this episode, this has been Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off. Signing off.